How are we all doing today? I'm scared, guys. Scared? Oh. I'm scared. I have to drive into work later, and I'm just not sure that I should do it. I... <laughs> been thinking that maybe I should just do a cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, you know, we really just oh. don't... This is what we're missing. We just don't apply enough cost-benefit to our lives. That's really all we're missing in order to actualize to the level of fulfillment to see all the harms that are being done by not responding to COVID and also responding to COVID. You know what we don't do enough of here in the United States? Think about life economically. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Welcome to the Death Panel. If you'd like to support the show and get access to the second weekly episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or you can always quote tweet the link in the replies to Glenn, Glenn Greenwald on Twitter. <laughs> um, and then follow us at deathpanel underscore if you want to help us out a little more. So uh, plugs aside... In the second half of today's episode, we're going to take some time to dissect Greenwald's hilariously bad piece, extolling the virtues of cost-benefit analysis and mm. whining over the fact that we have failed to use this very important and fair decision-making tool throughout the pandemic. <laughs> Big if true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Def a definitely accurate claim. <laughs> so, but, but first, before that... We've been talking in recent weeks about the social and political production of the end of the pandemic. And one thing that I think we've often discussed is the kind of push and pull around what's going to happen with the official state of emergency that's been declared, which will likely be ended regardless of how many cases are you know, being counted at the time, how many people are hospitalized. And it, it turns out that the situation is actually much more complex than that. Many of the pandemic relief programs that you would just assume would be somehow tied into the official federal state of emergency declaration actually aren't. And as Phil has found and written about this week, many of these programs are actually tied to independent and arbitrary calendar dates which I think is something that's been really overlooked and important to consider as we're sort of looking forward to the end of the pandemic as it's being made right now. Um, so in terms of like adding a little nuance to understand what's actually happening or what will happen in the coming weeks as we see the fight to either end or extend many of these minimal protections from unemployment insurance to uh, eviction protections to really simple things like administrative burdens and shifts to whether or not you can do telehealth. You know, it's going to be really interesting to see how these things intersect as we move forward and things start to need to either be extended or killed. Yeah. I mean, I started thinking about this. So like I was reading two sets of uh Two sets of scholars, if you will. Um, one, some, some leftists in Europe at the beginning of the pandemic. And then uh, the uh, National Association of uh, Real Estate uh, <laughs> Agents. <laughs> um, it's a great pairing, uh, like a fine wine and cheese, you know? Yeah. I mean, so, and I, the, the, I'll start with the real estate agents. Um, <laughs> because the, the real estate agents uh, in challenging the CDC eviction moratorium, which, you know, by the way, has been you know, extended to just after October 1st. Right. Um, but it, you know, it could be struck down even before that. But in characterizing the uh, federal response to the pandemic, it, it almost sounds like they're like using like a gombin uh, to like describe <laughs> the, the the federal government's response to the pandemic. They, they talk about this state, which is like, in their words, this is from the brief that they submitted, governing nearly all aspects of national life in the mm. name of public health. So then I was thinking like, okay, well, how in fact has the federal government and state governments like use the authority they have 
during the pandemic? Like, what does it look like? Right. And so I got thinking about like, well, the sort of the Agamben worry, right, is like you have this permanent state of exception where it, you know, ostensibly, whereas you might think like an emergency would be like a short period of time that like has a definite beginning and ending, the permanent state of exception, there just is no end. Right. And then I started looking at the way that Congress and the executive branch like drafted all of this stuff during COVID. Because I think one thing we've like talked about in this podcast a lot is there are real consequences when the federal government ends the official uh, public health emergency. But I think what we were kind of imagining is that COVID policy more generally is really keyed to these broader decisions about when we're in an emergency and when we're not. In fact, uh, I started going through the legislation, all of the relief legislation, looking for the phrase public health emergency, the invocation of like Public Health Service Act Section 319, um, a bunch of other sort of emergency statutes. And what you find is actually that is not what determines at all when relief programs end. Relief programs end on a pretty normal schedule that it looks a lot like what Congress does when it normally uh, legislate. So like, why is the CDC like eviction moratorium like timed in the way that it is? Ostensibly, Congress could have written it to end when the public health emergency ends, but it didn't. It just, you know, when it uh, ended up writing something in the Appropriations Act in 2020, wanted, you know, it said this is the date, right? That was a choice. And that happens anytime you legislate something, you temporize, right? You establish some sort of time frame. But what you see with COVID is like in many cases, we're talking about expiration dates that are very, very short. Well, I mean, I want I think I want to pick apart a couple of the things like at least sep- like separate and really clarify a couple of the things that you're talking about, because I think that we've uh, you've put a lot of kind of like the big picture and the little picture stuff together. And I want to, you know, for example, I think when you talk about the Agamben stuff, I assume that you're talking about all the people who uh, particularly leftists, but I think a lot of people re- like really it's like actually become kind of the mainstream uh, right wing thing to say that like lockdowns were about like control, for example, mm-hmm. like societal control, um, right. despite the fact that obviously, you know, as we've talked about a lot here, like the the realities of particularly within the United States, the realities of what constituted for a brief moment, quote unquote, like the lockdown period of covid are just, you know, like laughable in terms of if you're actually going to talk about them in terms of some sort of organized uh societal control structure there was not you know we've never had a a situation that was like the the state of exception police state lockdown shit that that right it's not uh, like um the kind of cordon sanitaire that you see when there are ebola cases where you're literally like keeping everyone confined to a household shutting down all commerce in the city to control infection at a border of right and there's a lot of different ways to like see that one is that obviously like people look at it as a control metric that was both for like the state and capital well like what like capital fucking hated the lockdowns like business has opposed all of that stuff business has been rushing to reopen the state has been rushing to reopen uh every last fucking thing and the other thing is i think the, the really important kind of takeaway the reason to talk about it in terms of that and in terms of like the sort of reaction to these metrics as like control mechanisms or whatever is that actually i think what we're really what we're talking about is a lot of the steps that were taken in terms of deciding what was going to be done in response to the pandemic from a policy perspective actually just show how completely fucking sloppy hegemony is. <laughs> like you can yeah. get a lot of different things kind of slapped together that all go more or less in the in the same uh, direction. And you could like point to those things as a bundle and say like, oh, it's societal control or something. But actually, it's just really like a three layer cake. It's just a bunch of it's like it basically it was just a bunch of like threadbare shit strung together, uh, you know, trying to make sure that like the capitalist economy didn't completely bottom out and i think so i think the reason to talk about in that context is like you know we've talked i think even in the last episode on monday we talked about will there there even be a public debate pushing for you know renew the public health emergency because obviously COVID isn't fucking over right and that was premised on the idea that so many of these things that the majority even of the policy responses to COVID, things like eviction moratoria or uh, or other or other types of like social assistance, what what fucking little there was really that a bunch of them were tied to to the public health emergency itself. And as we're talking about, yeah, it's like 
it actually says quite a lot that going back and and looking at how these were put in place and when the deadlines actually are, the fact that they are in fact not even tied to each other basically through being tied to this public health emergency, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And in the beginning of the pandemic, when we started seeing um, all of these decks come out, presenting the sort of plans for how we were going to move forward, what was going to, you know, reopen when we hit X amount of cases there, I, I think what comes to mind for me, like the most present is the sort of New York City color-coded thing about, okay, well, here's where we're going to reopen schools and here's the whole plan. And there was no plan ever discussed about what would happen if they needed to roll back. The development of the idea of the gating criteria was always towards an end of COVID and there was never actually any contingency for what would happen if you needed to go back to this quote-unquote sort of state of high non-pharmaceutical intervention. And ultimately, that absolutely did not um, pan out and new surges in cases did not ever typically reveal rolling back any of the reopening plans. Yeah, this is why I get so incensed when people even refer to this shit as lockdowns in the United States. Like, I can't speak to what Ireland did, for example, or what, I just know this context, but like, it's so ludicrous, you know? And and we saw this coming, like, you probably go back to the episode where we first started reviewing this, these plans, I don't know which one it was, but we were like, hmm, it's kind of interesting that going forward... It is it is this like linear process of like, well, when cases go down like to this rate of, you know, seven day average and like when this, you know, we have this many beds and when we have this many, you know, issue other sort of like issues that like all these like red, green, yellow circles like then we'll, you know, we'll, we will be phasing into like reopening um, and then and then it would say like in, in like an asterisk and, and we will reevaluate if needed. Right. Um, but like the most visible criteria, the things when you make a statement like when this happens, we will do this. What you're doing is you're setting up an expectation in the way that other people are going to react to your behavior. So when that trajectory is like hit, then people are going to be asking, well, why aren't you doing why aren't you doing the next phase? So you, you bind yourself. It's self ratcheting. Right. But there was no backwards ratchet. You just say, we'll reevaluate. Well, no one's going to ask. Like, it's going to be much harder to say, like, uh, well, you're reevaluate. You said you would reevaluate uh, when ca if cases went up. You're like, yeah, we're reevaluating. Right. Um, and we think that uh, now uh, people have the discretion and understanding to like do, you know, it, you, you don't tie yourself to the mast uh, at all. Right. And so it got it got me thinking, like, well, in a way, this is something that's like very different. So, like, most legislating that is done is done in this kind of linear chronological way where like you say, you know, we're going to authorize this program for, you know, the following number of years, we'll come back and review it. Uh, if we don't, you know, if we don't reauthorize it, it gets terminated. Right. And that's how like a lot of uh, lawmaking works. But of course there are these in emergencies, right. There are these provisions which kind of change that formulation a little bit, which say, well, we're not going to we're going to wait until there is some determination about the emergency to uh, terminate this program or to to require us to come back in and reauthorize it. Right. And so uh, and there are provisions uh, in the law that like allow that uh, to happen. So it kind of breaks that like firm chronological way of lawmaking in which you're saying, look, we recognize that the thing that we're dealing with isn't exactly chronological. Uh, or linear in that in that sort of way. It's, it might be cyclical, like droughts happen cyclically. And diseases like COVID are not necessarily linear uh, at all in their progression. They're complex. Uh, variants emerge. There are mutations. Um, well, also, there's very, a I very mean, clear, as we've, as you know, we've very clearly seen over the course of how the entire pandemic has uh, panned out as you go if you go, essentially, if you're thinking of everything in a sort of a linear progression of, OK, the moment that we hit this metric, this like abstract metric, then we will, you know, proceed to the next phase, despite the fact that very obviously you then can very simply and very like very plainly create the conditions where by removing those restrictions as quickly as possible, basically the moment that you hit this abstract variable, you 
directly create conditions where it's just going to precipitate more spread. Right. Absolutely. Right. So at a minimum, right, if there's some level of uncertainty, you might want to like delegate. Right. Now, it's like obvious why Congress doesn't do this like a lot. Right. Uh, you've got like separated powers. Like sometimes you have uh, Congress is like one party, the president's the other party. They don't want to give that person discretion. That makes perfect sense. And like there's total like electoral motivations. Like Congress wants, they, they like when programs terminate, especially if they're popular programs or like easy to reauthorize. Cause then what does it do? It allows them to come back in, uh, say, mm, nicely in the second quarter before the election. Uh, to come back in and say, hey, we reauthorized this thing. Yeah, right? it's be like the savior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a very classic thing. It's like uh, what the political scientist David Mayhew calls like the electoral connection. And it's like Congress like sets up opportunities to make it easier for its members to be reelected. It's like a basic endogenous feature of the institution. You know, so that all of that is normal, right? Like me saying, uh, oh, wow, look at all these like deadlines in, in the legislation. Congress, people who are like Congress watchers, they're like, yeah, who fucking cares? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, the, but the point is like this being a pandemic, there are some pretty obvious reasons why you wouldn't want to require Congress to have to like come back in to reauthorize something, especially on a very tight timeline. Now, the counter argument to that is, well, if it's still a pandemic, isn't Congress going to have a lot of incentive to come back in and say, yeah, you know, on September 30th, right before this thing expires, we're going to reauthorize it and then, you know, take a bunch of political plaudits uh, for solving the crisis. Um, I think that might be true for like a lot of it, but that relies on people actually caring about the pandemic and it being a really important (laughs) thing. And I think that what's where we are now in public opinion, I think public concern about the pandemic is essentially lower than it has been at any point since March of 2020, right before the first wave really hit. Right. And so I and I don't I can't forecast enough to say whether or not Delta is going to change that. I have it. in. I. It seems plausible to me that that's not true. I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about that. It seems plausible to me. We're going in a. A secular trend downward on that. Right. I I think part of it is like there's this huge disconnect between how a lot of these programs are discussed and sold and how they're actually designed and implemented, which ultimately like what they do as a function is sort of extend like it extends the state of emergency into all these different sectors, right? And it's sort of determines where like COVID applies. And I think as these things like start rolling back, you know, it's going to be very difficult to actually convince people that COVID is something that exists in an individual's life because it's this is kind of the way that we silo like the flu and act as if deaths from the flu are not also like able to be mitigated and lowered with very simple you know, interventions in terms of like wearing masks and sick policies and just developing the practice of instead of working yourself to death, no matter your health, staying home if you're contagious, right? Because the problem is is that as viruses pass through the population, they grow exponentially. They grow in all directions. You can't design policies that only look towards this sort of linear progression and expect them to be able to effectively contain something that spreads in all directions at all times. Trying to always anticipate and set an ending as if the ending of COVID is like actually guaranteed. And I, and and ultimately what it's just doing is actually extending the pandemic because it's allowing enough low-level spread to continue that it's actually pushing things further towards um, keeping COVID around just as a result of half-assing the intervention of this one very simple element, which is the sort of exponential spread that is carried through the air, you know, because if you think about that, just that one factor, that's the intersection of like, you know, the way OSHA has fucked up with failing to issue policies for anyone other than healthcare workers, the way we have fucked up with public schools over decades with um, HVAC systems and windows that don't open. And it, it really ultimately like gives you this picture of like, okay, like we are working against the exponential nature of COVID from a policy perspective. Right. And I think, you know, like a somebody might say, well, yeah, um, 
well, Congress can't, you know, it, we've got this budget hap- fight happening in Congress. Like is, all of this stuff is going to expire. Like so by September 30th, there are like 44 big programs that are going to expire. It includes much of the changes to uh, unemployment insurance, the payroll tax credits for required sick leave, um, extension of health benefits for some workers, expanded Medicaid payments in U.S. territories and and waivers of these administrative burdens, which typically prevent people from being able to get food stamp benefits or SNAP. All of that essentially goes away. Somebody could say, well, isn't Congress going to have an incentive to reauthorize it? Maybe. I just don't think that these should be temporary. Pro- like right. th- this should not be temporary programs on a schedule that we're expecting Congress to like reauthorize in the midst of a pandemic. Um, if this is really going to be pandemic relief, it should probably be tied to the public health emergency uh, itself in a minimum. But I think that like the broader point here, though, is it it's seen, it's just absurd to say that what the pandemic occasioned was like this Leviathan American state that like, you know, is like the gloves were off in terms of like telling people what to do and like expanding the power of like the imperial executive on public health. We've not really like if you just look at the way that we've been like legislating and doing uh, the basic sort of timing of public policy, uh, even to a lesser extent than I think any of the three of us thought. I mean, I think I think that in our heads, we actually did the virtual sin of thinking oh, that maybe more things were tied to the public health emergency right. um, in the legislation. And so we were thinking like, OK, what's the what's the next step? Uh, what are going to be the politics surrounding the end of the public health emergency? And then you look at all this legislation. It's like, no, it is even more sort of like normal politics, capital N, capital P than that. Right. Well, but and this is part of the problem, I think, which is take, for example, the I think it's September 4th aid to territories for Medicaid um, expires. You know, um, yeah, that's something that I definitely see a big uh, political people beating the like political drumbeat for um right now right it's like having having designed these things uh in in such a way where as you're mentioning as opposed to as we're you know as we're talking about as opposed to like tying them to well you know it's a pandemic we know that uh as a major public health event it can get worse it can get better and sometimes if it gets better we can prematurely say okay uh looks like everything's fine actually um, which in one hand, I think in one sense is done in these sort of like linear plans that we're talking about, but in another very, in another very important sense, I think is done by this sort of political process that you're describing, right? Which is that we could very easily, I think, especially considering the Delta, like the huge surge that is happening in cases right now in the U S like we could very easily see ourselves in a situation where in the fall you could see like things, uh, things already being rolled back and then they're not being really political pressure until it's already too late. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so again, most of these, there's a bunch of stuff that isn't very important. Um, social policy that is keyed not even to the public health emergencies, just like keyed to expire, uh, on this calendar. So the calendar really matters. Um, it's like worth, uh, paying attention to. It's also worth paying attention to like public health emergencies themselves, because whenever they lapse, um, there's a bunch of other things that, that essentially go out, including all of these, uh, provisions within Medicaid that make it easier for states to keep people on public insurance. Once all of that goes away, once the PHE is declared over, tons of Medicaid waivers are just going to expire uh, either like right after the PHE is, is over or the end of the quarter when it's over. Like millions of people could be disenrolled from Medicaid. That is a real thing that could happen whenever the PHE is, is declared. So essentially, like the problem here. Like, my argument is not that we have to, like, oh, like, this is to, like, the people who are, like, well, you know, who are, like, well, what are you talking about? Like, extending, like, a nanny state, like, forever? Like, a you know, a, a, like, the pandemic, like, Leviathan forever? No. Explicitly not. It should never be, like, it should not take a disaster to require minimally sufficient social policies or housing. Which, by the way, we didn't even do when we did. Uh, yeah. declare an emergency right uh like it's not like any of the things that are in place right now are adequate but like the fact that it, even getting something required a disaster is like it's very it, it's ridiculous so like essentially like if pandemic time is waning like we need to like just ditch the idea that it requires a disaster 
to like do something about the American welfare state. Like that idea is bankrupt. I just, I think it's like really, so yeah, I mean, the the idea that there's been anything like this, like American, like Leviathan response to the pandemic is like, even just looking at the, the really, I'm not even, this is not even hard stuff is just so ludicrous. Yeah. But you know, the, I, the, the problem is the, the sort of projected response, the the faux Leviathan, that idea still totally exists. And the failures to contain COVID uh, caused by rollbacks of NPIs and rollbacks of any, you know, competent mitigation policy, I think is a as a as a straw man, it's been incredibly effective. And we we've seen it argued from, you know, everyone from Emily Oster to Glenn Greenwald, but this piece that Glenn Greenwald published this week called The Bizarre Refusal to Apply Cost-Benefit Analysis <laughs> to COVID Debates takes that to the next step. It's like self-actualizing to the next level of that Leviathan argument, which is that he's saying, also, additionally, we didn't even use the useful tool of cost-benefit analysis and economic valuation of life, which was at our fingertips <laughs> yeah, for COVID. Right. Uh-huh. Don't you guys know that it's like, like yeah. you guys are you guys idiots? Do you not know what cost-benefit analysis is? Yeah, uh, let, let's get into this. Actually, um, I think obviously I'll just I think we can just preface this with I don't think that any of us take uh glenn particularly seriously here um my heart was broken he so disappointed me with this one yeah uh (laughs) yeah sure uh no he's i mean you know whatever whatever we don't need to we don't even need to evaluate all of his other work other than to say like you know i don't think any of us particularly uh follows or really cares about what he thinks however Uh, uh, other than to say congratulations for graduating from the meccan mccardle writing academy (laughs) Uh, you have uh, your certificate and a hearty handshake have been awarded. <laughs> um, yeah. So his uh, so his piece, um, which is paired with a video uh, with a whole thirty minute video, which I did watch, which is unfortunately very boring. It's kind of like it comes off like if Paul Verhoeven got lazy. Does that make sense? Like, if it's just like if a really bad sci-fi writer was like, what if we had like, there's a YouTube guy and he just gets really, really mad about cars. Um, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But basically, so yeah, this this piece uh, from from this week from Glenn is called and I think we'll we'll read some segments of the piece. And then I ha- I do have some clips from his like little YouTube diatribe. Yeah. But I think actually it's really instructive on how not to think about the pandemic. Um, this piece is called the bizarre refusal to apply cost benefit analysis <laughs> to covid debates, <laughs> which I think for longtime listeners will just make you just laugh pawn, as just, much just as just sit me. in <laughs> silence with that phrase for just a second just right. just just drink it in well but i mean also like we've been, it's just it's really funny because i feel like this in the entire pandemic we have been doing almost nothing but talking about how clearly there is constant cost benefit analysis going on over the pandemic and over pandemic policies in terms of individuals lives in terms of societal worth of whole groups of people and they're happening in plain sight basically yes that's all just, everyone's been doing all day long for months now right. on twitter is doing cost benefit analysis at each other arguing all fucking day and, and i want to emphasize too <sighs> Um, this is not just a matter of like, oh, what do we mean by cost benefit analysis? Mm-hmm. Are you just talking about colloquially like people do it? Have we not done it formally? No, no we've literally. done it formally. <laughs> like we've done it both colloquially and formally. The Trump administration, Trump, one of his first major real like laugh lines for me about the pandemic is we cannot let the cure be worse than the disease. Yes. Yeah. That is colloquial cost benefit analysis <laughs> definition. Okay. Yeah. Then you think like, what were his actual, like the actual cost benefit analyzers doing? The Council of Economic Advisors, August of last year, almost a month uh, <laughs> uh, to the date, reopening schools is key to unlocking the full potential of America's children. Um, the <laughs> our, uh, first, first sentence, the first two sentences, our nation's children deserve the very best. 
Uh, and no one should be kept from reaching their full potential. If schools remain closed this fall, many children will continue to face adverse effects from school closures caused by the pandemic shutdown. No, we've not been doing cost-benefit analysis. We've just been doing, oh, what's that? A cost-benefit analysis. <laughs> um, so I'll, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I think I'll start by reading uh, some of what Glenn says, and then occasionally I'll, I think I'll swap into his little, um, the, the YouTube version of it, or it is on YouTube, but it's like also through some other weird, uh, channel. It's like one of, there's also like some thing that's on like one of these video sites that's specifically for people who have been canceled or whatever. So, um, here's, uh, so yeah, here, here's, here's canceled Glenn. person's home. <laughs> here's Glenn. You to be canceled person's home. Yeah, exactly. Um, so here's Glenn. Can't wait to go there. Quote, in virtually every realm of public policy, Americans embrace policies which they know will kill people. Sometimes large numbers of people. Yes, such as the program of murdering. <laughs> in virtually every realm of public policy, Americans embrace policies which they know will kill people. Sometimes large numbers of people. They do so not because they are psychopaths, ah. but because they are rational. Here they we assess go. that those deaths that will inevitably result from the policies they support are worth it in exchange for the benefits those policies provide. So as you're saying, as, as you guys are saying, and if you're, if you're, if you're getting a whiff of what his argument is here, you are, if you think you're getting a whiff, you are correct. Yes. It is basically cost benefit analysis is good. Actually that the economic valuation of life and the decisions <laughs> to decide that like some lives are in fact worth less than others is great. So that like is Glenn how policy is, should be done. What a cool thing to argue. Like, you know what? You really have made it in life when your job is arguing that cost benefit analysis is cool on fake YouTube. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. congrats. Is, congrats. Especially Glenn. when you're the like Pentagon Papers lover. <laughs> uh, especially because, like, if I don't know if you take a little dip into the Pentagon Papers, you may find some cost benefit analyses written by the likes of the Rand Corporation about yeah. the, the value of lost lives in Vietnam and the benefits uh, thereof. So. Cool. Excellent. <laughs> um, so let me for for this next part, I'm going to I'm gonna let you hear from Glenn himself. Um Can because I just speak. For that specific setup, I feel like his writing really did the trick better than how he how he declaimed it in the video. But just yeah, let's let's get into let's get into how his um position works out for how this should be applied to COVID. <laughs> What we don't do, for some reason, some of us, is permit this rationale to be used in the debate over how to treat COVID, where for many people, the only acceptable argument is we can't allow reopening of schools. We can't allow people to go out without masks. We can't allow them the freedom to decide whether they trust a vaccine or not, because if we allow those things, people will die and only sociopaths would want people to die. There's no space in their minds for asking that question, what are the costs of preventing those deaths? What are the costs from those policies of keeping schools closed, of keeping businesses locked down, of preventing people from going out of their homes? And that's the argument I wanna review because I think it's an <laughs> extraordinarily defective part of our discourse that has led to something, yes. continues to leave, even in a post-vaccine world, so some extremely irrational choices, and yet the emotions surrounding COVID deaths prevent the kinds of debates that we often have in so many other cases, beginning with car crashes. So let's look at the data. <laughs> let's <Yeah>. not. <laughs> oh, Those when you've gone back. degenerates who oh. want to keep schools open and don't realize that all the children are going to be turned into gay frogs and commit suicide. Uh, when you've gone back to car crash discourse, this I is know. like, this is literally the Richard Epstein uh, like discourse from like the, the beginning of the pandemic. I definitely remember reading some like Catholic theolo like some like Francoist, basically like Catholic <laughs> theologian being like, you know, it, it, from a biblical point of view as well, but you know, it merges quite nicely with it's like, well, you know, uh, number one, the Bible says you need to have courage. <laughs> wuss uh and also like what are you not gonna drive a car yeah um so this is uh i mean number one it's it's amazing because 
Uh, also, there are a lot of fucking uh, highway fatalities in the United States uh, for a variety of completely preventable reasons that have to do with like American highway engineering and right. <laughs> regulation of cars. Like, so this is like the, the whole like gotcha thing is so funny because like, yeah, actually, there are a lot of completely unnecessary and preventable deaths on the American highway that to prevent them would not require like a nanny state or like a Leviathan, but it it, it simply requires some like basic sound principles of American highway engineering. Like, well also I do, I do want to say, I don't want to take his car argument too seriously, mostly because uh, as you, as you know, you mentioned kind of from the top, it's, it's pretty specious, but also it's not like anyone has ever proposed. I don't know. Let's try to do self-driving cars to mitigate uh, the amount of driver accidents or whatever. Well, or like- no, his, his argument's even like dumber in the sense that like he's saying like, uh, well, we, we embrace policies like, I don't know, having highways or cars or whatever that like lead you know, millions of people to die. And then, you know, we do this because you know, we think that the benefits are, are worth the cost. Well, yeah. But then we also th- if you look at the history of the American uh, transportation infrastructure, it's like, yeah. And then you have waves of years where people are like, hey, you know what would be great? If the steering column wouldn't, I don't know, for no apparent reason, like come out of the car and like plunge through my husband's stomach. Like that would be a good thing to have at some point. Like, I mean, yeah, like the, oh, the whole so car good. argument that he's making isn't even worth like taking seriously because what it is ultimately is a rhetorical device, right? Like he's using like speech and debate 101 where he's using the it's like not as bad as fallacy argument to say that like nothing matters unless it is literally the worst thing happening. Right. Which is like actually not a valid argument, but a very common political and rhetorical device where you sort of use this like moral equalization to minimize somebody's claim to uh, needing a public intervention into something, right? Like, it's it's super common, you know. We say, like, it's not a smart or necessary risk to shove children into small, confined buildings where the windows don't open for eight hours a day during a respiratory pandemic. And he says, well, kids are pretty safe from COVID, which is, you know, one, you understate the risks of first, you know, the first argument. Then, See last week's public episode. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, besides COVID protections uh, themselves have harms in children, you know, then he presents the worst fallacy number one. And worse problems, you know, which are more deadly to children, like car accidents, exist in the world, which is worse problem number two. Therefore, you know, and because no one bats an eye about that, why are we batting an eye about COVID? Right. And it's like, you know, you could meet him with the claims and you could be in his replies arguing why, you know, COVID and and I can't even say this without laughing, but arguing why COVID and car crashes are different and, you know, (laughs) separate. Or you could literally do anything else with your life or smoke a pack of cigarettes. (laughs) Smoke a pack of cigarettes. Better (laughs) for your health than that. Because like what he's done is like the car crash thing. The panel does not constitute or contain medical advice. (laughs) (laughs) The car crash thing is bait, right? Like this is he's using this as bait. He wants attention. He knows that this is a argument that rhetorically has no value or real material stakes in the world. So it's like if you engage him like one to one in combat on the car crash point like you're actually just like playing you're into just doing what he wants yeah. exactly it's, well, which is which is why i think it's very important to emphasize that the thing that i find the most hilarious at least uh about this whole thing is that uh and i and i assume that you guys probably would agree is this idea that he is completely doubling that in his in the in wanting to find a clever way to say like you know i'm not gonna say i'm an anti-masker i'm not gonna say i'm an anti-vaxxer or whatever i'm not gonna say that i'm taking any one of these like revanchist you know quote-unquote freedom positions or something that like i know that i would get mocked for like mocked for for a whole variety of reasons instead what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna say like in the name of everyone's freedom they should be free to like not wear masks or not get vaccinated or whatever specifically because in fact, risk benefit analysis is good that the cost of people that the costs 
<laughs> that, it's like you played yourself, sir. Right. Just it was just, well, it's just it's so it's so fucking funny because it's like all of these things. It like he literally here. Let me just uh, let me just read um, one one like really quick specific thing. He said so he says um, this framework above all else precludes an absolutist approach to rational policy making. We never opt for a society altering policy on the ground that quote any lives saved make it imperative to embrace. Precisely because such a primitive mindset, primitive, oh there we go, right there with defective, as he used earlier, um, ignores Beautiful. all the countervailing costs which this life-saving policy would generate. The use of cost-benefit analysis as the primary formula we use is uncontroversial, oh, which really? is hilarious because nope. this, oh, right, th- this is you. You may be delighted to find Glenn that you have found the exact place. In fact, the death <laughs> panel where. This is one of the main things that we talk about, in fact, is how fucked up cost benefit analysis and the statistical and how, valuation of life and the economic valuation of life is. Well, but just to finish And how frequently part, controversial it is and has been for decades. Right. The fact that there are tons of countries that explicitly don't do it yes. on public health policy because <laughs> it, they, they believe in the precautionary principle, which is that there are some things that you don't fucking put cost benefit analysis on. Yes. And so he says... Okay, the use of cost-benefit analysis as the primary formula we use for policymaking is uncontroversial. At least it was until the COVID pandemic began. It is now extremely common in Western democracies, Western with a capital W, big big W Western, uh, democracies for large factions of citizens to demand that any measures undertaken to prevent COVID deaths are vital regardless of the costs imposed by these policies. True. Yeah, true. But the the other side, I mean, this is why it's like, I don't know what kind of carapace they've been keeping him in and like feeding him nectar and, uh, you know, honey and things like that and just sort of like massaging him. Um, but like, uh, sorry for that image. Uh, but like, just, just, yeah, okay. There are plenty of people demanding that. There are also plenty of other people demanding uh, a relaxation and an explicit weighting of the countervailing effects of COVID protection measures. Yeah. In other words, why do you think that mortality went up and GDP went up in quarter three of 2020 simultaneously? Why would that be? Uh, why, why would it be that we explicitly like took a policy in May of this year to eliminate a pretty low cost, low imposition public health guideline of like wearing a fucking mask to prevent uh, the spread of a respiratory pandemic when plenty of the population (laughs) wasn't being vaccinated. Like, why do you think we did that? Is that because we are using the precautionary principle here? No, we are both explicitly and implicitly using cost benefit analysis. Right. Right. So Glenn continues. uh, (laughs) And this is, I think also one of my, one of my kind of favorite components of his, uh, of this uh, piece of writing quote, Perhaps this irrational mindset is explainable by the fact that COVID hospitalizations and deaths are more dramatic than the more insidious lurking harms from sustained life disruptions. Again, here's the myth. The lockdown has lasted forever and was real. Perhaps the rapidly declining rates of child rearing in the capital W West make it more difficult to observe or care about the damage all of this is doing to the developmental abilities and mental health of children perhaps other factors from a psychological desire for parental protection in the form of authoritarian power (laughs) or a warped sense of quote-unquote safetyism is rendering any cost benefit analysis morally unacceptable i just love (laughs) i just love the dsm i love it so much don't you dare call me a psychopath you're the fucking defective you're the defective one do you even possess reason god yeah and this gets to and this gets to actually i do have a i do have a a a a clip that goes with this too because he actually kind of he gets into this a little bit more explicitly in his uh in his little video peel slowly and see And there is a certain segment of not just the United States, but the West that I believe has gone almost insane, but certainly way over to the excessive irrationality when it comes to this fixation on one side of the ledger. Do everything possible, including keeping schools closed, possibly for two years. (laughs) 
just because <laughs> there may be a couple of kids who die, which sounds crass, but no more crass than let's have cars, even knowing it will kill people. <laughs> but they just simply refuse to look at the remarkably significant and difficult to quantify and at this point unknowable <laughs> cost of the policies they're advocating, more lockdowns, more restrictions, okay. even more masks for children who block the ability to understand how emotions function oh my God. and the ability of kids, oh most of all, no, no. to go this to school. Is, Those uh, we don't know how emotions function. I'm good that we, glad we don't know that. Trust me, all of these, I know that there, there's another like 20 seconds on this clip. All of these, I tried oh, to keep as short as possible. I'm good. I'm just cursing at you. <laughs> I'm just cursing at you. Those costs are devastating. They're serious. And it's way past time that we start considering them and not allow people to tell us that those who want to look at both sides of the ledger are being sociopathic. The people who refuse to look at both sides of the ledger are being extremely irrational every bit as much as someone who says, let's ban cars and airplanes because those kill people. And Honey, airplanes. I want to show you the other side of the ledger. Um, <laughs> he's, like, he's like making a hard pivot to extreme train Twitter now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Tom, Tom is the fucking tank engine. Um, but like... Let's let's also talk about like the costs of these deposits. Little little uh, cost benefit analysis. Pro tip: uh, the way that you weight benefits of something in cost benefit analysis is, and I don't agree with this. Okay, but this is how it works: um, is something called willingness to pay, and what that means is uh, again a concept come up with uh, the by. The Rand Corporation's Thomas Schelling uh, in the Cold War. So, again, this is uh, Glenn's intellectual genealogy here, which I'm Big sure fan. he loves. But love this love this look for Glenn. Um, <laughs> I want him to get the little skinny black tie and the white shirt, like a, the, one of the NASA guys in Apollo 13. <laughs> I think that would be a great, great look for him. But, uh, you know, willingness to pay refers to uh, the hypothetical consumer's willingness to pay an additional cost monetarily to avoid an increased chance in death. Okay. So that's the way that we do it. And uh, the typical way that this is done to establish a value of statistical life is you go through either uh, consumer price risk trade-off studies or like essentially wage risk trade-off studies. So you look at like what people seem to be willing to pay in the market to avoid an increased chance of death. So like, what are people willing to pay for like a, you know, a fire extinguisher or a, you know, fire alarm in their house or like a bike helmet. Okay. And so when you do that, you come up with a value called like the value of statistical life and you can apply that to, um, because again, it's not using Glenn Greenwald's view of what, uh, the value of a human life is it's like what people seem to be will like essentially how risk tolerant do people seem to be again I don't really agree with this I don't think this is a great way I think there are plenty of things this makes no sense but if you want to be cost benefit analysis boy you've got to like get your cape right. you know and and so like if you're gonna do this right and then you and then you actually look at the the actual cost benefit analysis you see that like the costs of uh, actually uh, doing things to like shut down the economy, um, all of these things, they are far outpaced by the benefits of uh, saving human lives. Because guess what? Con- contrary to what a lot of pundits, this is like a line that I hear, like I hear it on the left, I hear it on the right. I've heard it like, like as far apart on the political spectrum as you possibly could is the idea that, you know what? It must just be the case that people don't really care if they die or not. <laughs> right and like they just really incredibly like risk tolerant definitely I, if i die I, I die you know i think that you look actually at what people seem to be uh like and and certainly uh on the deathbed no, nobody is necessarily not that i know of have been like incredibly risk tolerant um but yeah people seem strangely not to really want to part with their lives or at the very least <laughs> even if they are they're willing to make sacrifices to avoid uh, increases in their chance of death. What a surprise. Um, So if what Glenn is saying here is that in my, in, in his view, like we're not doing the waiting correctly. Sure. Maybe it doesn't really matter to you, Glenn, because uh, you're willing to wait 
the uh, benefits of, you know, I don't know, more sensible NPIs, like a little bit lower because they don't really matter to you because you're doing just fine because you're like completely fucking insulated from the world. And, you know, essentially like nothing can harm you. Sure. But you are not the fucking king and nor are the people who uh, are, you know, essentially for whom there is no real uh, risk of these things, whose income give them an ability to just be insulated from this. Like, that's not how this fucking works. That's not what public health is. That's not what any of this shit uh, is. Well, also, I just want to point out that one of his main straw man, uh, like straw man arguments, other than obviously the car thing, uh, which we've heard from a whole bunch of people, mostly, um, you know, that like early on, that was kind of a great Barrington declaration thing, whether he's even aware of that or not, it doesn't fucking matter who gives a shit, (laughs) like whatever he basically, basically it's like the, I mean, the funny thing about this is, is it's kind of this like collection of, but I don't even think he necessarily realizes that it's basically just this like collection of kind of uh, like arguments that have been telephoned through a whole bunch of different iterations over the course of the entirety of the pandemic. And so what's actually kind of interesting is it's very weird that they've kind of like calcified uh, like a fucking stalactite or something into <laughs> uh, this particular form here. And now we can like find them as this kind of like particular example of like, again, how not to be a f- like how not to like drastically oversimplify and just like understate uh dramatically understate like what like the horror that the fucking pandemic actually is but one of those arguments specifically just to be really clear one of those arguments one of his main straw man arguments as i said a moment ago is is this thing that you see repeated over and over and over again in all of these different places which is the what about the mental health impacts on people who have to deal with, you know, doing NPIs or in his, you know, fictional universe that he's created for himself being subjected to, you know, these, uh, dramatic draconian lockdowns, these, Mm -hmm. (laughs) these like abject manifestations of state power or whatever. And of that, I will just say, you know, it, it strikes me honestly that people suddenly seem to care a hell of a lot about mental health and the well-being of people (laughs) when it's convenient for them. Right. I mean, I'm serious. Like so much of the mental, so much of like the, like considering in the first place that so much of the history of mental health actually really is like about the the protection of making sure that people are kind of socialized in a really normative way mm-hmm. right i mean that's why at the very in, uh, beginning of institutions uh, of asylums or whatever you see people uh, incarcerated in in mental asylums for reasons like quote unquote politics mm-hmm. novel reading and literally quote desertion by husband but uh, like, I'm sorry, like if if your argument is over, like, well, they're going to be unknown and untold like mental health effects. Like, I'm sorry, like those are fucking like that is in- inherently going to be a crocodile tear argument coming from one of these people, because these people talk about mental health as though we are in this like fucking you know, bourgeois wonderland where like mental health care is like readily available, <laughs> a readily available service and not right. the carceral fucking bullshit that it is right you know what i mean i love the way that glenn frames it too because he says like it's a phenomena that's like everywhere and this phenomena is like hard to see and it's hard to measure and there's no way for us to know the untold harms it's like you cannot understate these insidious mental health plagues that are just waiting to roll throughout the isolated population, right? Like as if the sort of wave of depression caused by these faux lockdowns, you know, that that itself is more virulent and more contagious than the virus, right? Like that's kind of the whole presence. And it's wild to be able to sort of say, like, at the same time, like, let's look at all the car crash data and then in the same argument to go, and we have to protect all of these children from all of this stuff that we cannot see, nor measure, nor ever perceive or determine, but that I know is absolutely real, Trust really me. dangerous, <laughs> yeah. super risky, the worst risk of them all. Yeah. My favorite thing about this is like Glenn is Mr. Anti-technocrat, right? That's like his shtick. This, you know, argument is so funny to me, though, because it's like to me. I think that this is just an empirical matter. Like dealing with a pandemic is, is political, right? 
there are going to be a lot of people in the population uh, who don't want to do anything to protect it or feel insulated from it. And they're going to perceive the cost of doing something about it as being worse than uh, the the death that results from not doing anything about it. Right. That's that's just politics. Right. And there, you know, there are arguments. People weight the fucking costs and benefits in their head differently. Right. And we fight about this. And again, if you had been watching American politics at all, like it's pretty clear we did cost benefit analysis and we made a decision. And guess what? It's basically the decision that Glenn would have come to himself. Yep. Like we just tolerated a very large number of deaths. Like congratulations, Glenn. Everyone's yeah. doing what you think they should be. And, well, and uh, wonderful. And I want to, I, I want to um, underline that actually, because um, you're you're absolutely correct. The thing is, the the I think this is one of the big takeaways of this actually, which is like you know the thing that he has such consternation for this cost benefit analysis, uh, not you know not quote unquote not being applied to COVID. Obviously, I think you know, it it seems pretty clear that part of the subtext of this is that he's uh, suggesting that he's just mad that more people don't internally think about, well, you know, I guess I shouldn't advocate for this or that policy because the cost benefit analysis would probably show, <laughs> which is such like, uh, I don't know, like hogtied by fucking CBO thinking kind mm -hmm. of uh, th kind of um, bullshit. But to really, uh, I think, underline what you said, Phil, the things the the type of cost benefit uh, analysis or the the types of prioritization really of you know who is whose lives are actually worth saving during the pandemic basically have already been decided basically along essentially the lines that he is suggesting and i want to play something where he basically says just about that essentially nice. <laughs> because you'll notice um so he says specifically like you know, he's talking about these these trade-offs. He's like, let's talk about the costs and benefits in his little YouTube video. And he's like, okay, so when you look at the actual, when you look at the actual like impacts or whatever, here he he starts breaking down demographics mm. of people um, only by age um, because uh, I think it would clearly be a losing argument if he tried to actually show any of the other uh, you know demographic breakdowns uh, uh, in terms of like how people have been impacted by covid because then he would he would like look as explicitly classist and racist um right. if he was actually doing but that if but if you use age then it works age you know? and uh watch for a bingo word let's just say um here I'll, I'll just without further ado let me just let me just play this this is this is glenn again to underline what what phil was saying this is glenn explicitly downplaying the risk to everyone except for some very specific groups that he will name now the costs of COVID itself are often wildly misstated, wildly exaggerated, oh. especially when it comes to children. If you're 85 years old, you're 600 times more likely to okay. die of COVID than the 18 to 29 group. If you're 75 to 84, 230 times more likely, 65 to 74, 95 times more likely, and then you go to the children, and again, with that reference group of 18 to 29s who aren't dying very at a very high rate, it's less than one time. So COVID is still very much, with Delta, a disease that is overwhelmingly killing <laughs> very old people and people with comorbidities and uh, very rarely uh, here, there we go. killing children. Just pulled from the future, baby. Yeah, yeah you know, see, the problem anyway. is, is that That's all the of these, word, you know, comorbidities. all of these children aren't being socialized to be normal, which is going to mean that all of the, you know, it's just absolutely just so transparently buying into like the rhetoric that your health status or your disability like directly correlates to your value as a person. Right. I mean, that's an obvious point, but it's Which like worth a, stating that well, this is like all about what that's his a cost argument benefit is. classic. Though, it is just to be exactly. But, sure. Exactly. But also like, but so is the reduction of, of all, uh, policy benefit to simple life saving. So like, yeah. for example, yeah, exactly. um, have you ever been to the hospital for a mild case of COVID? Maybe one where you just got uh, myocarditis and maybe you were there for three days and maybe, I don't know, uh, you went into just as much debt as you had just paid off uh, from your credit, from like getting <laughs> un, undigging the mound of like student debt and like credit card debt that you had been in for years. You go to the hospital for three days. They do a bunch of scans and procedures. And uh, yeah, surprise, you are in just as much debt as you were like before. So 
you know, this idea that like, oh, it's it's just like, well, they, people at 85, like the first thing he's doing is obviously like implicitly saying, well, the value of statistical life is is lower for people who are older or have comorbidities, which is um, a, a eugenic uh, thing to say, yeah. uh, essentially. Very, very cool. But additionally, the idea that like, oh, yeah, beyond that, what are the costs? Hmm. I don't know. Beyond that the cost of people actually having to go to hospital for this and the cost of other people not being able to access hospital uh, for this, like actually being able to like go in for other kinds of treatments because the hospital is literally fucking clogged with people who have COVID. (laughs) Um, So this is, uh, yeah, all of this is just a testament to, you know, Glenn Greenwald, rationalist. Yeah. He's abandoned populism. He's he's a rationalist now, baby. You better not tangle with the expert. (laughs) I mean, it's so funny because it's like back in the day when uh, schizophrenia was used as like a blanket diagnostic label. The whole like way that mental health uh, or ill mental health was defined in the first place was like, oh, you know, people, they're incapable of being reasoned with and that there's no way to sort of rationalize their behavior. Therefore, like they must be removed from society. And it's like the same, you know, it's the, the entrails of that same argument are just like all over like his writing and there's no surprise here but i i appreciate glenn's hard hard lazy bad job that he did on this because it brought me so much joy to be able to see him genuinely try and make cost benefit analysis cool yeah i didn't even read the part where he just like approvingly read like a dictionary definition basically of risk of uh, cost benefit analysis from an NGO that he says like see this is all people do it like all people do this nor did I even play the clip where he says that maybe it's just all the terrible childless adults I know who have never had children who just think that this is okay like it's a yeah. Uh, yeah, demographic panic 101. I mean, Come at one on, point man. he says, you know, uh, the real pandemic is like the restrictions that are imposed, not the virus. Mm, like, yes. Cool. Uh, I wasn't able to go to Baskin Robbins and get the <laughs> fucking rum raisin one month. You tell uh, power, you know, Glenn. Go tell um, him. Go tell but, power. Yes. Speak my, your my, truth, Glenn. Yeah. That's a really, I'm glad you said speaking truth to power there, you know, the probably one of the oldest books on policy analysis is called, um, speaking truth to power. Uh, but I, I, this is, this is the new, the new way is speaking your truth, uh, to power, right? It's like, yeah. and, and I mean that in two senses, like one, I think he is like channeling this like really stupid, uh, thing that people do. They're like, well, you know, not, it's like, not only do I want to like state my prep, like I get it. Some people don't like the way that the U.S. or any other country managed the pandemic. They would have been they in their heads think it would have been better. Have we, you know, not done any of these things? And you know what? Fine. You want to continue like believing that. Uh, great. Uh, you know, whatever you are entitled to that. But my favorite, the, the, the twist, right? The, the twist on the new Glenn Greenwald twist on populism is to say, not only do I have these beliefs, but they are the rational ones they are like i am i am speaking my truth to power and i am the policy analyst this is the so like that's the thing really that's also been done like not only have we been actually doing cost benefit analysis throughout the pandemic the aura of cost benefit analysis is like hung over this whole thing in which you have people you know you know you know what this is i i keep going back to jake backrax uh you know what i would do it's the barstool policy analyst right I no it. exactly the, i mean the cost this cost benefit benefit analysis shit this like risk this uh this idea of the i mean actually i'll uh Whatever. Actually, I'll do like a, a very light spoiler. We call this in our book the joined uh, eugenic and debt burden argument that uh, how to put it that weighs people that weighs like individuals, but also entire populations in terms of like their quote unquote, like eugenic drain, their eugenic threat to society versus the like debt burden that would be incurred on society as though it were some sort of fucking plague of people mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, to actually uh, to actually do anything to instill social social supports for them. So anyway, light spoiler. But basically, that is like 
that shit, the thing that he is arguing about is just hilarious because if you're going to spend your entire fucking career saying that you're anti-authoritarian or saying Mm -hmm. that you're fucking speaking truth to power or whatever, how the fuck can you miss that cost-benefit analysis is the political philosophy of capitalism? Right. There is nothing separate there is no political action really that happens in the united states and in a lot of capitalist countries that is not cost benefit analysis that is not fucking the reduction of bodies and lives and activity to fucking economic chaff like (laughs) i can't wait for his uh searing takedown of health communism it's gonna be great yeah get our book glenn yeah and subscribe to the podcast glenn because Glenn, Glenn, you have Patreon. so much to slash death panel pod. So much to learn, <laughs> sweetheart. Yeah. But maybe we, but no, maybe we're wrong. Maybe we just need to like stop being wusses and drive our cars again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, I mean, and if you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. You'll get access to Monday's episode. This week's episode was great. They're all always good. And if you want to know what we're talking about with that Jake Bacharach joke, then you have to listen to um, our discussion with him about Matt Iglesias's book, One Billion Americans, that was recently in the patron feed. So patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, post the link in the comments whatever you feel like doing we appreciate it and you can always follow us at death panel underscore and uh as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week (laughs) 